Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And happy Halloween, by the way. I'm recording this on Sunday, October 31st. Halloween on a Sunday? Feels kind of strange, doesn't it? Anyway, so I had originally planned on trying to get this episode out last weekend, but obviously that didn't happen. But that's okay. Speaking of Halloween, bought myself a little time by re-releasing a couple of old Halloween specials. I'm joking there a little, but I actually do really like replaying past holiday episodes when their respective seasons roll around, and I was going to re-air those specials anyway. Uh, But at the same time, I have to admit, I did also feel a sense of relief when I found myself fretting, you know, last weekend that I wasn't going to be able to get any new content out on time, and it dawned on me, hey, perfect time to dust off an old Halloween episode. Um, You know, if David Pakman can air reruns, why can't I? And I'm just teasing David Pakman. I really like him, which is why I think he came to mind. And if you're wondering what the two specific past Halloween specials that I re-uploaded or re-released were, um, one was my mini-documentary on the Salem Witch Trials, which I, which, no pun intended, which I re-released last weekend. And then last night I re-released the first ever Weekend Out Halloween special, another mini-documentary simply entitled A Brief History of Halloween. And I think I've said this before on the show, but I can be very hard on myself when it comes to how I view my own content. I can be very self-critical, always nitpicking and finding things I could have done better, or wringing my hands over glitches or audio issues, the sound of my voice, etc., But I am relatively proud, relatively, of my little documentary episodes and holiday specials. And as a documentary junkie myself, I do enjoy kind of getting to play amateur documentarian and putting those episodes together. And it's fun trotting them back out during the holidays. And hopefully people get something out of them. Or that maybe they might at least help people get into the spirit of whatever particular season or holiday it happens to be. But moving on, and so I know most people probably aren't too crazy about correction episodes, but I still think they can be fun and interesting, and as a creator, sometimes necessary. But before that, I thought I just might quickly chime in or offer my thoughts on that crazy Alec Baldwin shooting story that's been all over the news. Nothing to do with atheism or religion, but it's just a wild story, and I've been thinking about it since it first broke last weekend. And I feel kind of bad, you know, characterizing it as just a wild story, because as we know, someone actually lost their life. But unless you've been living in a cave, you're probably already aware that actor Alec Baldwin, back on the 21st of October, accidentally shot someone to death and injured another while on the set of uh, what was an upcoming movie called Rust. Not sure how far they were into the filming when this happened, or if the thing will ever see the light of day now. A lot of people have been comparing it to the accidental shooting death of Brandon Lee on the set of The Crow. The Crow is one of my favorite movies of all time. I used to be absolutely obsessed with that movie. Great soundtrack, too. And of course, despite Brandon Lee's death, the movie was still eventually released. Some really good use of early CGI, too. That iconic scene where Eric Draven is looking out from his apartment after first donning the crow makeup. I believe that's actually the stunt double's body, and then they use CGI to superimpose Brandon Lee's face. 
Still bums me out to think of Brandon Lee dying on that set, and out of respect in a sense, I always did my best to avoid the sequels and the TV show. Not sure Brandon Lee would care, but he was so good in that movie and died making it that I had no interest in seeing anyone else trying to fill those shoes or Doc Martens. Anyway, I don't know if Rust will ever be released, but the whole thing's so crazy, and the more we find out about what the production of that movie was like, the more of a mess or absolute shit show it seems to have been. Baldwin accidentally shot the cinematographer, a woman with a family in her early 40s, I believe. She died, and then I think the bullet passed through her and injured the director. Someone handed him a quote-unquote hot gun, which I guess in the business refers to a weapon containing live ammo, whereas a quote-unquote cold gun contains blanks. Hey everyone, I'm just gonna cut in here with a correction. I could have sworn when this story first broke that I heard people refer to a quote-unquote cold gun as a firearm that was loaded with blanks as opposed to live ammo, but after researching it further, it seems to be the case that a quote-unquote cold gun is a gun that isn't loaded at all, not even with blanks, which kind of makes the error seem that much more egregious. I can kind of see, even though it should never happen, how someone might mistake or confuse what kind of ammo's in a gun, but mistaking a loaded gun for an empty gun and then handing it off to someone declaring quote-unquote cold gun, damn. Uh, anyway, we now rejoin the weekend out already in progress. Despite it being loaded with live ammo, I believe they did nevertheless announce quote-unquote cold gun when they handed it to him. He was supposedly practicing with it when it went off, killing the aforementioned cinematographer, wounding the director, etc., it was quickly revealed after the story broke that there had apparently been at least two other accidental discharges of live ammunition on the set and that some of the crew had quit or walked off due to safety concerns and later delayed pay. I guess the person in charge of the weapons, including firearms, is referred to as the armorer. Makes me think of the Mandalorian. This is definitely not the way. But the armorer on the set of uh, Rust was a young woman in her early 20s, 24 I think, and a story broke recently claiming that a couple of months earlier she was working as the armorer on another film starring Nicolas Cage, and Cage supposedly yelled at her and walked off the set after she repeatedly fired a gun without warning. And there's claims that live ammo was kept on the set of Rust, well obviously, and that some members of the cast or crew would practice firing in between takes with live ammo, shooting cans, etc. And I don't know what the normal protocol is for that kind of thing, but people have said that having live ammo on a film set is usually a big no-no. And as the puzzle pieces have been coming together, more questions arise. Alec Baldwin wasn't just an actor on the set, he was also uh, the or an executive producer. So unless it was just kind of an honorary title, like they'll sometimes offer people a producer credit, it's safe to assume he was probably in a position of some authority or was somewhat responsible for overseeing how the production was run. So after multiple accidental discharges of live ammo, knowing that 
there was live ammo on the set, you would think you'd be super careful about where you point a gun. Uh, this might sound corny, but when I first started working construction, as tense as my relationship with my father can sometimes be, I'll give him credit where credit is due. One of the first things he told me was, always respect your tools. When you're handling something like a power saw, you always have to keep in mind the damage it could potentially do to you or someone else. I would think the same thing would especially apply to guns, which is why I imagine you shouldn't have live rounds on a set in the first place because of the off chance that they may accidentally find their way into a gun in an actor's hand. And even blanks can do damage at close range, so you would think even a quote-unquote cold gun should be wielded with due caution. And once again, it sounds like the whole production was a mess. I remember when I first heard the story breaking on the news, my first thought was how awful Alec Baldwin must feel. Imagine accidentally killing someone. If you have even a drop of human decency or empathy or a semblance of a conscience, that's the kind of thing that will most likely haunt you, you know, to the end of your days. And I still feel bad for him, but the more we find out, the more it seems like he himself may have been negligent to some extent. If he knew about the live ammo on the set, he should have done something about it. Or at the least, you know, he should have been extra careful where he pointed his gun, even if it was supposedly quote-unquote cold. And actually, I think uh, it was just last night, I heard that he may have been rehearsing a scene where he aims or fires the gun at the camera, which is a shot you often see in westerns, etc. So it's almost like the audience is looking down the barrel of the gun. If that's true, it might help explain why the cinematographer and director were in the direct path of the bullet. Even then, that's even more reason to have the gun checked and double-checked, or maybe even just rehearse the scene with a completely unloaded weapon just to be safe. Even if the person handing him, you know, the gun announced quote-unquote cold gun, with a number of mix-ups and close calls on that set, the knowledge that live ammo was lying around, finding its way into guns, and being accidentally discharged, I would feel a lot of responsibility, or at least I like to think I would. And be extremely careful with any firearm I was handling, you know, in that situation. And it sounds like on a professional set, you should be able to trust the armorer or the person handing off the weapon. But it also sounds like this set of production was anything but professional, which is the problem. All of this probably could have been avoided if whoever was in charge cracked down and cleaned house when first learning that there was live ammo on the set. And I think it was just this morning that I heard that it may be the case that up to four different people may have previously handled that gun prior to it being handed off to Baldwin. And as I understand it, for safety reasons, the protocol is usually that a gun that's going to be fired in a scene should be handled by as few people as possible, perhaps even just the armorer and the actor. And this is where I get a bit irreverent, but I also remember thinking, I wonder if there's any Trump supporters getting any schadenfreude out of this, because as you're probably aware, Baldwin repeatedly parodied or mocked Trump on Saturday Night Live, and I was wondering if there were, you know, Trumpers out there going not so cocky now, are you, you know? Uh, that's dark, I know, but I did wonder that, maybe in part, because to be honest, there's a dark part of me that might feel that instinct. Uh, like, I'm not a big Trump fan myself. And if Trump accidentally shot someone, well, that might be a bad example. I'm not sure Trump would care. But um, 
I'm joking, jo kind of. And I've long had a kind of mixed view of Alec Baldwin, to be honest. I think the first time I noticed him was in a trailer for the movie, or this movie called Malice, where he played this arrogant doctor with a god complex, and he was so good at playing the part that I had this impression of him as this arrogant a-hole, which may or may not be accurate. But yeah, in his heyday, he was a very popular actor who was considered kind of a heartthrob or a male sex symbol, and then eventually he had this kind of career renaissance where he kind of reinvented himself as a comedic actor or a funny man, 30 Rock, hosting SNL, that kind of thing. In fairness, I think he did have at least, you know, semi-comedic roles earlier too. He was in Beetlejuice, Married to the Mob, that kind of thing. And I actually really warmed up to him during that period where he embraced his, you know, more comedic side. I thought he seemed like a genuinely funny, good-natured guy, but he did have kind of a dark or troubled side, maybe, you know, um, maybe anger management issues. Back in the day, I think he had assaulted a photographer, a paparazzi type, hard to feel, you know, that's sorry for them, um, you know, who had been photographing his family. And then later, during his kind of aforementioned career renaissance, there came that leaked audio of him angrily calling his daughter a little pig or whatever. And now, you know, this. And I often think about how it doesn't matter how rich or powerful or famous you are, life pulls the carpet out from under all of us from time to time. It's dark, but I also, you know, I've thought to myself, you know, if you don't like someone or you're jealous of them, just wait long enough and you'll see them humbled by life eventually, you know? I mean, look at Alec Baldwin, kind of reinvented himself, found a young, attractive wife, new kids, doing the whole old dad thing, and bam, literally. And once again, I do still feel, you know, somewhat bad for him, but everyone on that set should have been more careful. That didn't need to happen. I definitely smell a lawsuit coming. Baldwin, as the executive producer, is probably going to be found culpable to some degree. And, uh, you know, I've said it ad nauseum. Yeah, I feel bad for him, but I feel worse for the the child or children and husband of that dead cinematographer, you know? Anyone else's mind go to a Matlock, Murder, She Wrote kind of place and wonder if maybe, you know, someone intentionally put live rounds in the gun because they didn't like Baldwin? It crossed my mind, but who the hell knows? I'm sure we'll find out more with time. Good chance it's probably just what it seems, the outcome of multiple people being dumb, negligent, and irresponsible. But anyway, finally, on to the corrections. I kind of have a little pile of mistakes that have been accumulating. And as usual, some might seem significant, while others might seem relatively trivial. But let's proceed. And so this first one is actually regarding something I said during a Patreon bonus show. I was talking about antidepressants, what's new, and I mentioned Jordan Peterson in passing. I brought him up because I was talking about my own experience with SSRIs, and I noted something Peterson had said about post-SSRI anxiety, so to speak. And paraphrasing myself, I was saying whatever you think of some of Peterson's more divisive views, etc., he's nevertheless still a psychiatrist capable of prescribing meds, so he probably knows his stuff in that sense. The problem is I was wrong. Peterson is a clinical psychologist, not a psychiatrist. A key difference between the two being the fact that becoming a psychiatrist requires rigorous medical school training, and thusly they have the power to prescribe meds, whereas a psychologist despite being able to earn the title doctor via a doctoral degree program, etc., generally aren't medical doctors or physicians. 
And this is a difference I'm keenly aware of because I've been doing talk therapy and taking meds for chronic pain and yes, also a bit of anxiety and depression since my early 20s. And when I first started seeing a therapist at the clinic or medical center where I go, it was really convenient because my therapist was a nurse practitioner, so they could also prescribe meds. And I had a couple like that, and then for whatever reason, they decided to break things up. Your talk therapy would be done with someone, you know, who was solely a therapist or psychologist, and you had to see someone else about or, you know, for your meds. Very inconvenient. So I'm well aware of that difference or distinction. And I think somewhere in my brain I was aware that Peterson was a psychologist and not a psychiatrist, but it was just one of those weird brain glitches where what I'm saying seems correct in the moment, or I wouldn't say it, but then upon listening back to the episode, I'm like, oh shit, wait. And I get this sinking feeling that I'm probably wrong, and so I'll go and look it up, and I'll kind of have my fingers crossed, and I'm like, who knows, maybe I'm right. But no, as is often the case, I'll find out I was right right about being wrong, and then I'll have to eat crow and issue a correction. But it's the right thing to do. I don't want to put bad information out there and then just ignore, you know, my mistakes for the sake of my own ego or pride. As corny as it might sound, you know, I think the truth matters. But in fairness to Jordan Peterson, I'm sure he still has a good understanding of psychiatric meds, both as someone who treats people who are probably on them, and as someone himself who has been on SSRIs and anti-anxiety meds. And if you're new to the show, my basic take on Jordan Peterson is there's some things I take issue with, like his somewhat off-putting or anachronistic take on women in the workplace that he demonstrated in that now kind of infamous Rolling Stone interview. Oh, the irony. I can't believe I have to issue yet another correction for something I got wrong during a correction episode. That interview was with Vice, not Rolling Stone, and you should be able to find it in its entirety on YouTube if you want to watch or hear it for yourself. And once again, we now rejoin the weekend out already in progress. And in fairness, people sometimes say things in interviews that they later regret or that maybe aren't necessarily reflective of their actual beliefs. So does he actually feel that way about women in the workplace or does he regret some of you know what he said? I don't know. But if you haven't seen that interview, and I'm sure you can find it on YouTube, he basically questions whether or not women should be allowed to wear makeup in the workplace or whether men and women should be allowed to work together in general. And I think the subject came up because they were talking about sexual harassment in the workplace or something like that. And he brought up something that I've been aware of for some time. A long, long time ago, I was watching a documentary about human sexuality, and they mentioned this idea or theory, which I think is fairly well accepted, that the reason why women wearing makeup became a thing is because it kind of mimics the look of the female face during sexual arousal. So the flushed cheeks, the ruddy and gorged lips, the dark eyes, etc. And in fairness to women, the practice of wearing makeup goes all the way back into antiquity, and who knows, maybe even further back into prehistory. I think there's evidence of ancient cosmetics at least as far back as 10,000 before Common Era um, in Egypt, I think. So that would have predated even the dynastic period. And speaking of ancient Egypt, I know men uh, supposedly wore makeup too, but I believe that was in part because they used eye makeup as a kind of sunscreen, uh, similar to the eye black worn by modern NFL players. 
But some of it may have been decorative, and I'm sure throughout history there are examples of men wearing decorative makeup as, you know, a sign of status, or certainly men wearing makeup or woad as, you know, war paint to look more intimidating, or to show clan or tribe affiliation or allegiance or whatever. But my point is, wearing makeup is such a long-standing custom or phenomenon that I don't think women think, oh, I'm going to mimic sexual arousal, you know? <laughs> wearing makeup is just kind of an ingrained custom. And sure, women might wear makeup to look more appealing to the opposite sex, but also, as I know from talking to female friends, that it, you know, in a way, it just kind of makes them feel good. Um, it can be kind of a confidence booster. And I've had multiple female friends tell me sometimes they actually feel kind of socially pressured to wear makeup in the workplace. Because if they don't, people will notice the difference and ask them if they're feeling under the weather or if they're feeling tired or, you know, etc. But who cares if women wear makeup in the workplace? Men employ things that amplify or enhance sexual attraction too. You know, wide-shouldered blazers that emphasize that ideal V-shaped male torso, manicured facial hair, etc., etc. Instead of trying to make women look less attractive or less tempting or segregating the sexes, how about people just learn to act like civilized human beings and employ some basic self-control and not harass or grope other people in the workplace or in general? Well, consensual groping's alright, but you know what I mean. And whenever I see Jordan Peterson's daughter, Michaela, I always think of that interview because she likes to wear kind of skimpy, sexy outfits, and she wears a ton of makeup, bright red lipstick, etc. And I'm always like, I wonder what she thinks of her dad's take on makeup in the workplace, or what he thinks about her wearing all that makeup. And then as an atheist or a non-believer, I'm not crazy about the way he kind of at least tacitly promotes or enables religion. And I'm not some militant atheist, and I've often stated on this show how there's things I like about various religious traditions, and there's even parts of the Bible that I find moving or inspirational. But there is something about the way he sometimes seems to kind of coddle believers or promote or endorse religion that rubs me the wrong way. I get the feeling that he's coming at it from a kind of highbrow, intellectual, Jungian, symbolic, you know, or archetypal kind of place. But he's also, at the same time, kind of enabling literal belief with the way he kind of tries to blur or confuse the line between the figurative and the literal. But in fairness, several months ago, I caught an interview Peterson did with, I think, a Canadian sculptor who had converted to, I think, Greek Orthodox Christianity. And in that interview, Peterson seemed a bit more reserved or guarded about religion, maybe even a wee bit skeptical. And I remember there was a moment during the interview that really caught my attention. Peterson seemed to be, to be uh, you know, doubting or wrestling with belief in the divine a little. And then he broke down and he said through his tears or, you know, kind of choked up that he had seen or experienced moments, and I'm paraphrasing, where the narrative and the objective worlds had touched. And I'm probably misquoting him, but I think the point he was trying to make is that he had experienced moments of seeming transcendence where the divine seemed to manifest in a kind of union of the symbolic and experiential or, or objective, you know, worlds. 
But I thought it was a very human moment. And I get so many episode ideas that strike me, but I just never have the time to get to all of them, you know? In that same interview, the sculptor he's interviewing tries to blame the quote-unquote new atheist for cancel culture. His reasoning being that it was the popularity of the quote-unquote new atheist that was at least partly responsible for driving people away from religion and and this is a hackneyed, often regurgitated talking point, that when you get rid of religion, it creates a vacuum. And in this case, the vacuum was filled by cancel culture or woke ideology. And there's so much wrong there. Firstly, atheism existed long before the quote-unquote new atheists. And the reason why I keep putting new atheists in quotes is that the term new atheism was coined by a journalist back in 2006, I believe. And it's not a term that I think many atheists ever really embrace themselves. I always got the feeling that it was kind of wielded as a pejorative. And I think even the biggies like the Four Horsemen, Hitchens, Harris, Dennett, and Dawkins, I don't think they were necessarily too crazy or enthusiastic about the term either. In fact, I've noticed if you ask them about it, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, certain high-profile atheists will even tell you they're somewhat ambivalent about the term atheist itself. Never mind quote-unquote new atheist. I know I've heard at least Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins talk about how adopting a label or having a label slapped on you can kind of be, you know, problematic or confining. And as a non-believer, I wrestle with that myself, and that's probably evidenced by the fact that I often feel the need to clarify or add the caveat that I'm technically an, you know, quote-unquote agnostic atheist. And I don't add that caveat because I'm afraid what people will think. I add it because agnostic atheist is probably the subcategory of atheism that most closely or accurately matches my worldview. I'm agnostic because I don't claim to know for certain whether there is or isn't a god or an afterlife. And I'm atheistic because I have some serious doubts, to say the least. So, knowledge claim versus a belief claim. And it can potentially get very complicated or convoluted. And it can come down to a matter of semantics. Since, you know, I, since I say I don't know, you could probably call me an agnostic. And you wouldn't necessarily be wrong. But since I also say I doubt or don't believe, you could also call me an atheist and you wouldn't be wrong. But better minds than mine have, you know, wrestled with all of this. And it gets tiring. You know, are the two terms mutually exclusive or are they overlapping? Uh, that's why sometimes I'll just simply refer to myself as a non-believer. But to get back to this idea that the quote-unquote new atheists are responsible for cancel culture, in that first decade after 9-11, you had Harris's letter to a Christian nation, the end of faith, Dawkins' The God Delusion, and Hitchens' God is Not Great, and those authors and their works did become very popular, but not so popular that I think you can blame them for the death of religion or giving birth to cancel culture, and I think it's pretty safe to say that the Four Horsemen probably are not big fans of political correctness, you know? So trying to suggest that people like Harris and Dawkins or the late great Christopher Hitchens are responsible for the current obsession with pronouns or cancel culture culture, you know, give me a break. And also, you can be religious or a person of faith and also have other interests or social causes that you fight for. And conversely, you can be secular or only nominally religious or an atheist or agnostic and not give a shit about, you know, um, 
political or social causes or movements. So trying to blame cancel culture on uh, a waning interest in religion seems like a bit of a stretch to me. But I pointed out what I don't particularly like about Jordan Peterson or what things I take issue with. But I certainly don't hate or dislike him. I actually enjoy his YouTube lectures where he talks about psychology and symbolism, etc. I appreciate his honesty about his own health struggles, including wrestling with depression and anxiety. And he's actually someone, even though I'm not at least at the moment a big enough content creator to make it happen, but he's someone I think I would actually enjoy talking to or interviewing. There are some public figures, on the other hand, who I disagree with, you know, that I absolutely loathe, but he's not one of them. And I just remembered there's also the whole carnivore diet thing. I wonder if he and his daughter are still doing that. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, onward. Now, this one is, is really trivial. I was talking about how back in the day I got caught, you know, in a pileup on the highway. Airbag went off in my face. Car went off the highway down into a ditch and wrapped itself around. I accidentally, car crash pun not intended, um, I said my car wrapped itself around a telephone pole. It was actually a tree. Why would there be a telephone pole down in a ditch? I think I probably just had the phrase wrapped around a telephone pole that you often hear regarding car accidents in my head. Uh, but speaking of that crap, I recently bonked my head pretty hard and a few, save the jokes, and a few days later, my migraines and accompanying nausea started to return, you know. Uh, I should probably get an MRI in the near future, find out if I have a nest of spiders or a giant tumor in my head or something. Anyway, on to the next correction. So next up, during that relatively recent episode where I was talking about Norse mythology and the controversy surrounding that upcoming God of War game, I mispronounced the word Jotun. A Jotun is a frost giant in Norse mythology and the land where they dwell is Jotunheim. Now I know that in Old Norse, German, Swedish, etc., the letter J is usually pronounced the way we pronounce the letter Y, as in, you know, yes or yellow. And I don't mispronounce other names or words from Norse mythology, like Mjolnir or Jormungandr. Uh, probably still kind of butchering them, but at least I got the J pronunciation part right. Uh, but for some reason, I tend to say Jotun instead of Jotun. And I think, you know, I go back and forth during that episode, and it probably stems back to the fact that I first got interested in Norse mythology as a kid from reading books, and I had no idea how the Norse words or names were supposed to be proper pronounced, and even after learning, for some reason, the incorrect pronunciation, Jotun, stuck with me. Maybe I just thought it sounded cool. Okay, so it might be a little neurotic of me to go out of my way to add this caveat or clarification, but that's never stopped me before. I think in the very early days of the podcast, I used to refer to these as neurotic self-corrections. So anyway, Frost giants are the most common variety of giant in Norse mythology, and they do come from Jotunheim, but it may or may not be the case that Jotun can also be used to refer to other types of giants as well. I'm not sure. There are fire giants in Norse mythology, uh, but they come from Muspelheim. And they mostly come into play at Ragnarok, and they're led by Surt or Surter. Make way, mythology nerd coming through. We now rejoin the weakened out already in progress. Is that getting old yet? 
Okay, on to the next correction, and this is probably the most serious one where my conscience really said the right thing to do is to issue a correction. So I was talking about ivermectin, goodbye monetization, and even though I think people should get vaccinated, and I've railed against anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers more than my share on this show, uh, alliteration, I believe in always trying to be as intellectually honest and objectively truthful as possible, and so I was trying to offer a measured objective take on ivermectin ivermectin. And once again, in a nutshell, for the sake of context, I'll quickly give my take on it. Ivermectin is an antiparasitic drug that's been around for roughly 40 years, used in developing countries to treat things like river blindness, head lice, etc. At doses formulated for humans, it's a very safe and effective drug. It kills parasites without crossing the blood-brain barrier. Where COVID comes in is ivermectin has been shown in the lab to possess antiviral properties. It was proven to be effective in vitro against a number of RNA viruses, including COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. I believe specifically it was shown to inhibit replication of COVID-19 in a monkey kidney cell culture. The problem is some say the dose you would need to successfully treat COVID in humans would be toxic. Although generally speaking, ivermectin is a safe drug, at very high doses, it can supposedly have dangerous side effects, including neurological effects such as seizures and even coma, despite its hesitancy to cross the blood-brain barrier at lower doses. And there have been cases, although it's been overplayed in the media, of people taking doses formulated for large animals, like horses and livestock. And because it kind of cleans you out, another danger of taking too large a dose can be diarrhea, dehydration, damage to your intestinal lining. And also it should be noted that it hasn't been approved by the FDA for the treatment of COVID. Some will say that's simply because the FDA is just trying to be responsible and don't want to rubber stamp something that might prove ineffective or harmful, while others more distrustful of the government have simply suggested it's because of the FDA's supposed incestuous relationship with Big Pharma and that unlike vaccines, that you know, the COVID vaccines, there's no real profit in ivermectin since apparently there's no patent on it and it's a very inexpensive drug. Um, is there any truth to that idea or allegation? I don't know. I haven't done a deep dive on that specific claim. So to reiterate, you have people suggesting the dosage of ivermectin needed to successfully treat COVID would be toxic to humans. But on the other hand, you have people like Pierre Corey, a critical care physician, who is in large part responsible for popularizing the idea of using ivermectin to treat or prevent COVID-19. He, along with other physicians, formed the FLCCC, the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. And as I pointed out on their website, um, you know, they even, the FLCCC, acknowledge the efficacy of vaccines and state that ivermectin should be, in quotes, a bridge to vaccination and a safety net for those who cannot or have not been vaccinated. And I believe in places where there's been a shortage of vaccines, such as parts of India, ivermectin has been given out. Um, has it been proven to be effective in those instances? I don't know, to be honest. That's yet another thing I haven't had the time to properly research. But there's this idea of quote-unquote pre-treating with ivermectin as well as other medicines or compounds that have been proven to have antiviral properties. 
And as I said, if people can get ivermectin at a safe dose formulated for a human, not livestock, from their doctor or a doctor, I have no problem with that, but I think they ideally should also get vaccinated. But if you have concerns about getting vaccinated, it goes without saying that you should talk to your doctor or healthcare professional. I'm just some dude with a microphone. But where I screwed up was I was talking about how the jury still seems to be out regarding ivermectin's efficacy or lack thereof regarding COVID-19. And I still think that's probably the case. But I was trying to be, you know, even handed and illustrate or give examples of how, on the one hand, you have anecdotal stories or testimonials, some of which you can find on the uh, FLCCC's website of people claiming they had a loved one who was losing a battle with COVID going downhill fast. They slipped them ivermectin and they got better. And on the other hand, there's stories of people who took ivermectin, got COVID and still died. And here's my mistake. There was an English lawyer or solicitor who was a follower of Brett Weinstein, was staunchly anti-vax, and believed it was better to develop natural immunity than to get vaccinated. And it is true, at least according to that often mentioned study out of Israel, that natural immunity supposedly does offer even better protection against COVID than being fully vaccinated. One thing people seem to like to leave out, though, is that that same study also says that natural immunity combined with at least one dose of vaccine offers better immunity than natural immunity alone. But anyway, this 58-year-old man by the name of Leslie Larnson uploaded multiple videos after having caught COVID. At first, he describes how it's no picnic, but it's not really, you know, worse than a bad cold or flu, and I'm paraphrasing. And he says that, you know, he says how it's good. He's glad he's finally getting a chance to develop natural immunity. Uploads another video shortly after, talking about how horrible he's feeling, that his whole body was so racked with pain that he spent a prolonged period on the floor stuck in the fetal position, but still looking on the bright side, keeps talking about how this is a good thing, natural immunity and all that, and then shortly after, you guessed it, he died of COVID. And the obsession with natural immunity seems so weird. And there seems to be a certain inconsistency, too. People will take monoclonal antibodies, which have been proven to be a highly effective treatment against COVID. But, you know, they'll take those and all these other man-made medicines and synthetic treatments, but not the vaccine. There was a similar thing recently with Dennis Prager, who I just, you know, I think I was talking about on, on the last episode. He got COVID and recorded himself talking about how he thought it was a good thing that he was finally getting a chance to develop natural immunity. And luckily in Prager's case, he didn't die. But you could hear how sick he was in his voice. He sounded really weak and frail. I had never heard his voice sound like that before. And Dennis Prager is in his 70s. He's in an age group that is particularly vulnerable to COVID. I don't know what an elderly person's objection to getting vaccinated would be. It seems to me that they could only benefit from it. It's not like the cases with boys and young men of a certain age where there's that relatively rare risk of myocarditis, which I think is just a fancy medical term for a certain kind of heart inflammation. Why does it seem to target boys and young men specifically when you think they'd be more hardy or robust health-wise? I don't know. But I think despite how serious heart inflammation sounds, that most people with myocarditis don't require hospitalization, and supposedly it's much more likely that someone will develop it as a symptom of COVID-19 itself after contracting it, rather than getting it as a vaccine side effect. 
But what I got wrong was I said Leslie Lawrenson was on ivermectin, and I don't think that's true. Could be, but I don't think so. He was very pro-ivermectin. He published multiple tweets promoting or defending it, but I'm not certain he himself was taking it. I may even recall him saying something along the lines that he wanted to take it, but had trouble acquiring it. I'm not sure. So I just wanted to get that straightened out. It was an unintentional mistake. Are all mistakes by definition unintentional? I don't know. Anyway, you know what I mean. But saying someone was taking something when it turns out they might not have been, it didn't really sit well with me, and I thought the right thing to do was to issue a correction or clarification. Okay, so this last one isn't a correction. It's more of a listener-slash-viewer feedback kind of thing, but should be fun. So my regular episodes don't do so great on YouTube, it's actually kind of embarrassing, but my special documentary episodes sometimes do very well, including my documentary on notorious British occultist Alistair Crowley, and I have a separate Google account for the YouTube channel with its own separate Gmail, and I'm always getting inundated with email notifications alerting me to people leaving comments on some of my more popular or successful videos, and someone recently left a doozy in the comments section of that Crowley video, so I'll read it now. You know nothing about Crowley. I served him for over six years in the Church of Thelema, and what a lie it was. There was no one like him, and you will never know him like we did. And then I replied, he died in 1947, so you must be up there. So yeah, Crowley died about 74 years ago, so if this guy's claiming to have actually served Crowley in life, that would, you know, put him at least in his 80s or 90s, and that's being charitable, allowing for the fact that maybe he was a child or young man at the time. Who knows, let's play along. Maybe he was born into Crowley's occult order or organization, the OTO, or Ordo Templi Orientis, and served Crowley for the first 10 years of his life or whatever. It's not impossible, but how likely is it that some guy pushing 90 is online eating Doritos and trolling my comments section? It's probably more likely that he's just some self-important jack-off pretending to be something he's not. But after that ad hom, let me be charitable once again. Maybe he wasn't suggesting he served Crowley in life, but he served him as a member of the OTO or something. But even then, the way he frames it seems to imply that he's suggesting he knew Crowley personally. And another weird thing is, he says he served Crowley in the Church of Thelema rather than in the OTO. And Thelema is indeed the religion Crowley founded. It basically means will, as in do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. It's a Greek word transliterated into English. But I couldn't find much online about a quote-unquote Church of Thelema. But there is a Facebook page for a, in quotes, restored Church of Thelema. So maybe this guy's a huckster looking to drum up interest in his little bullshit religious movement. <laughs> And to be honest, I don't mind being criticized constructively by well-intentioned people or being corrected when I get something factually wrong, but what gets me is the feigned indignation and the pomposity. The master Therian once buggered me while I wore nothing but a silk kimono, all in the service of contacting his holy guardian angel, Iowas. You'll never know him like I did. I, I made up that last part. And yeah, he says I'll never know Crowley like he or they supposedly did. I do admittedly find Crowley to be darkly fascinating, which is why I did that documentary episode on him in the first place. But he's not a personal hero or someone I look up to. I'm not even sure I would want to know him personally. Maybe in a sense you could say I admire his intelligence and his willingness to go against social norms and explore the dark side of things. 
But I think he was also, you know, a master manipulator, a narcissist, and someone who used people like toilet paper. And there's kind of a long-standing contention over whether or not Crowley was a charlatan or, you know, a true believer. But if someone asked me, was Aleister Crowley a con man or charlatan or a sincere practitioner of the occult? I'd somewhat cheekily answer yes, I think he was both. I think on the one hand, he was a seeker who was sincerely interested in the pursuit or mastery of occult knowledge, and at the same time, he wasn't someone that you would necessarily want to trust. You know, he was someone who seemed to enjoy dominating and exploiting others, someone who burned through the family fortune and probably didn't mind sweet-talking or bullshitting people out of their money or sweet-talking himself into their patronage or patronage. But I wonder what this guy thinks I specifically got wrong. A good part of that episode is actually me reading Crowley's own words via the confessions, etc. But just so I don't have to issue another correction next week, I, I have the feeling, but I'm not sure, that I might have implied that Crowley founded the OTO, perhaps the way I was talking about it. But the OTO, once again, the Ordo Templi Orientis, is thought to have been founded somewhere around the late 19th century and early 20th century um, in either Germany or Austria, and it was most likely founded by a man by the name of Karl Kellner. Things are a little murky. But when Aleister Crowley was eventually admitted to the OTO, he very quickly began to take things over. And so that's why I was kind of talking about it as if it was his organization. Then there was also the AA, not Alcoholics Anonymous. But, and I think Crowley incorporated his Book of the Law into both organizations. I don't want to go off on a long Crowley tangent, but the AA is kind of a mysterious order or organization. Uh, it can be traced back in its modern iteration or incarnation to 1907 with, uh, with Crowley. They, now, members of the AA claim that it existed in every society, and that might just be something that Crowley or someone else cooked up to give it a feel that it really was this ancient, mysterious order that had always been around. It's not even sure what the, uh, or certain what the proper uh, name is, what the acronym AA stands for. It's possible that it's Silver Star uh, in Latin, Argentium Astrum, or Astrin Argon, or Aster Argos uh, from the Greek, and so on and so on. You get my point. There's a lot of proposed or suggested contenders. Uh, and the two were affiliated to some degree. There was overlap there between the Ordo Templi Orientis and the AA, or Silver Star, perhaps. But with that, I think I'm going to call this episode a wrap. Thanks for listening, everyone, as always. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not there much. Um, you can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe we're doing that now. If you'd like to support what I do here, you can help the show out for as little as 99 cents a month by going to patreon.com slash theweekendout and becoming a patron. And uh, once again, happy Halloween, everyone. And until next time, brothers and sisters, all right.